You may not know this, but there's actually a brutal and bloody war raging between scientists who study happiness, psychologists, and self-help gurus over which is better, empathy or compassion. Getting Discomfortable with Compassion Proponents of compassion argue that with empathy, you can actually get emotional burnout if you are constantly empathizing with unpleasant emotions like fear, anger, grief, pain. It will eventually deplete you as if you are feeling those same unpleasant emotions directly, like the people you are empathizing with. On the other hand, People like Brene Brown claim that with the right boundaries, you can quote-unquote tread the waters of empathy indefinitely. Personally, I have always leaned towards the empathy side of the debate because, frankly, I'm always on Team Brene, and for the longest time, I wasn't really entirely sure what compassion even is. I recently took a two-day self-compassion workshop with Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, and I finally kind of got a handle on what compassion really is. Most people seem to define compassion as empathy plus action. And studies have actually shown that when people are feeling what they call compassion, the motor cortex in their brain is active, kind of motivating them to actually go out and act to actually help people, whereas empathy is said to activate our mirror neurons, so we are able to feel the same things that other people are feeling, but not necessarily with the intention of helping them. The problem with the definition of compassion as empathy plus action is that in my experience, most people usually just want empathy. On a one-to-one basis, when someone comes up to you and just wants to unload about a problem or a bad day or something that they're struggling with, more often than not, they really just want you to empathize. They don't want you to insert advice as if you are smarter and better than them. They just want someone to say, that is totally understandable, I completely empathize. That creates a sense of equality, it helps reduce shame, and it just helps you feel seen and understood, and that it's okay to be you and to feel the unpleasant feelings that you're feeling. Compassion can sometimes create this condescending savior complex, where the person you are interacting with thinks it's their job to fix you, which inevitably feels like they are therefore slightly above you on the fictional hierarchy of human value, which is subtly shaming. But there's another definition of compassion that I uncovered in this workshop on self-compassion that I did, and that is just empathy plus love, empathy plus goodwill, empathy plus warmth, empathy plus kindness. It's less about actual action and more about the positivity that you layer over top of the empathy that you feel for them. In fact, they cited this fascinating study done with a French monk named Matthew Ricard, pronounced with a French accent. Matthew Ricard is sometimes called the happiest man in the world, 
So they did all these brain scans while he was meditating to see what was going on. Matthew was able to show that you can meditate on someone else's problems in two very distinct and yet similar ways. On the side that he calls pure empathy, he's literally just resonating with their emotions directly, nothing else. And when he does that and they scan his brain, it shows a real emotional burnout happening. But then Matthew can layer this filter of positivity on top of the empathy, what he calls warm-heartedness or a sense of love or compassion. It's not an action. It's not a definitive, I'm going to solve this problem for you, or I'm going to give you advice, or I'm going to go out and do something. It's just this positivity layered over the empathy. And when he does that, it actually stops him from feeling emotional burnout. So I think part of the problem in this big debate between empathy and compassion is the definition of empathy and compassion. When it comes to the first definition of compassion as empathy plus action, I think this mindset is the most useful for when you are giving compassion to like a group of people. For example, if you feel compassion towards migrant workers, you might then want to go out and volunteer or send them money or really do something active to help that community. And I think that's great. And I think that we need that kind of compassion. But when you're dealing with another human being face-to-face, one-to-one, or in a small group, compassion as needing action often backfires because in the moment what the person really wants is empathy. And if they then ask you for help or ask you for advice, then go ahead, help away. But when someone is just going through pain, I actually think that something more akin to empathy is more useful. However, it is clear that if you are just empathizing with the pain and sorrow and suffering and grief in the world, you will have an emotional burnout. So the way to deal with it is by adding this layer of warmth, this layer of positivity, this layer of love that you are sending out to the people or person that you are empathizing with at all times and to yourself. In my mind, that is empathy. So it's not that empathy is a bad thing. Quite the opposite. Empathy is at the heart of all human connection, belonging, love, our ability to understand and see what each other is going through is everything. That is so important. As I talked about a few weeks ago in the episode about nonviolent communication, Empathy is used in that system as the basis for creating human connection. But what is clear is that you have to be careful with how you use empathy, because if you're not skillful about it, it could lead to your own emotional burnout, in which case you have two people suffering, which isn't going to help anyone. It seems to me that this, this, this layer of warmth and love that you use almost like oven mitts to hold really powerful and painful empathy is a kind of attitude that you actually have to cultivate. You have to foster it. A kind of goodwill, a bit of optimism, acceptance. And it's clear that it's so important that that layer of warmth and kindness and love 
goes in two directions at once. It's not just about giving love to the people you are empathizing with. You need to give that same love directly to yourself because in empathy, you are experiencing exactly the same pain that they are, perhaps to a lesser degree. But nonetheless, your brain treats the emotion created by your mirror neurons as if it is real pain that you are actually feeling. It really is the same as suffering directly yourself. So in order not to get emotionally burnt out, you have to give yourself that feeling of compassion and love and kindness and warmth and positivity in order to contain the unpleasantness of these negative emotions and situate them inside a view of the world that is more accepting and understanding. Instead of wrestling with these negative emotions, instead of, instead of trying to reject the suffering or, or cover it or numb it, it really is just about loving it and accepting it. And that seems to be the most powerful way for us not to get overwhelmed by these feelings. As usual with all emotions, by accepting them, using mindfulness and awareness and love, they tend to be more manageable and pass more quickly than when we try to avoid them. And there's this interesting magic that happens with this whole empathy mirror neuron thing. Kristen Neff, in this workshop that I mentioned on self-compassion, actually said that when you are working with someone in pain, one of the most powerful things that you can do is to show compassion to yourself. Because if you are empathizing with them, that means you are also in pain. And by showing compassion to yourself, you are then going to feel better. And ironically, the person you are working with will then pick up on your own self-compassion and their mirror neurons will start to mirror the way that you are dealing with your empathetic pain of their pain. It's like demonstrating for someone how they can work with their own pain using the magical transference of empathy. I take in your pain, I feel it, I recognize it, I understand it, and then I bathe it in love, and I reflect back for you how you can then bathe your own pain in your own love, and then we can both kind of help each other feel less suffering, or at least work with that suffering in a way that is more manageable. So empathy is everything, but empathy alone can be dangerous. So we need to smother our empathy with a thick layer of warmth, kind-heartedness, loving-kindness, positivity, whatever you want to call it, such that our capacity to deal with the suffering of others and our own suffering becomes that much larger. And once we've used this warm-hearted empathy to really connect with someone, to show them that they are seen, and to show them that they are equal, we are then in a position, if they want help, to go into compassion in the sense of empathy plus action. We are then primed and ready. If you want my advice, I will give it. If you want me to chip in, if you want me to help out, I'm happy to do it. But I always want to start from this place of empathy plus warmth 
because I think that that is what people are really yearning for on a personal basis. And intertwined with all of it is a healthy dose of self-compassion. So what is self-compassion? I think self-compassion is essentially self-empathy plus warmth, kindness, love. It's taking the time to mindfully be aware of and see exactly what you are experiencing and feeling and how your body is reacting, what sensations are coming up, what emotions, what thoughts even, and then bathing all of that in love. The classic introductory question to self-compassion is to think about the way you react when one of your close friends or family members or children comes to you with a problem. Think of the way you talk to them, the way you support them, the way you care about them. And then compare that to how you treat yourself when you have a problem. How do you speak to yourself? How do you support yourself? Do you give yourself a lot of love and kindness or do you give yourself a lot of blame and shame and anger? There is a message embedded in our society that says you're not allowed to love yourself. Certainly not just the way you are, at least. There's this message that you're allowed to love yourself when you dot 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 get that job you want get married, have kids, make some money, are successful, or when you do good, or when you help others. Whatever your ideology or culture says makes you a worthy person, that's when you're allowed to love yourself. But even then, it's almost taboo to love yourself because it's as if we've conflated loving ourselves with being selfish or self-centered or letting our guard down such that we make a terrible mistake. We have such an emphasis in our society on humility and modesty that it seems like loving ourselves is embarrassing. But as with a lot of cultural messages, there's nothing behind it. There's no logic or science to back it up. In fact, quite the opposite. Brene Brown says that you can't love someone else more than you already love yourself. That means all of the pressure and judgment and shame that we heap on ourselves to be perfect is inevitably going to leak out into all of the relationships with the people we love, into the relationships with our children, with our partners, with our friends, with our family, with our colleagues, with our students. We are going to subtly judge and shame and pressure them to be perfect in the exact same ways that we are pressuring ourselves. And until we can learn to accept and love ourselves just the way we are, we can't fully accept and love anyone else just the way they are either. And that doesn't mean that by loving yourself and accepting yourself that you are never going to change, never going to learn, never going to improve, never going to grow. There's nothing that says you can't love and accept yourself just the way you are right now and not still want to improve your skills and your abilities and evolve and become a better person and learn more. That's who you are right now. Someone who is imperfect but hopes to be better. And if you can love the part of you that hopes to be better, 
then you can come at it from a much healthier place, rather than fueling it with just shame and judgment. But ironically, if we're deciding to love and accept ourselves just the way we are, that means we have to love and accept all of the shame and judgment and pressure that we are putting on ourselves. Once you start to dig into this whole self-compassion thing, you discover that it's kind of a cure-all or a cure-nothing. It's, it's just looking at things as they are, and instead of trying to change them, just loving them. When I'm feeling really shitty, I start to give myself a lot of self-compassion and love. Wow, I'm really feeling shitty, of course. Like, look at what happened to me today. And when I give myself that compassion, it's not because I'm trying to stop myself from feeling shitty. It's actually about seeing and honoring and accepting that feeling of shittiness with an underlying emphasis of love and understanding. And it just so happens that when I completely accept how I'm feeling with a sense of love and kindness and warmth, that that shitty feeling does pass more quickly. But if you are trying to make the shitty feeling pass more quickly, you'll fail. (laughs) This is weird catch-22. You have to accept it and love it for it to move on. And if you're not really accepting it, if you're fighting against it, if you're trying to get rid of it, then it won't leave. Since I've taken this self-compassion course, I've been making an extraordinary effort to talk to myself like I am one of my own best friends. Sometimes even like I'm my own child. I make jokes with myself. I smile with myself. I sing to myself. Sometimes I talk to myself in goofy voices. In fact, I think one of the keys to a robust self-compassion practice is to get over the cultural taboo that says you shouldn't talk to yourself. Self-compassion is all about creating a relationship with yourself in which you are able to send yourself goodwill. And sometimes that comes in the form of literally just talking to yourself. It's almost like you create two yous, which there kind of are anyway. And one you says a bunch of nice things to the other you. (laughs) And in the process, both of the yous start to feel better. This conception of self-compassion dovetails so perfectly with what I talked about several months ago in my episode about family. In that episode, I came to the conclusion that to be an adult is to completely parent yourself, to take complete responsibility for your own health, your own well-being, for the direction of your own life, and self-compassion is a natural extension of that. If you are going to parent yourself, then it makes perfect sense that you would completely smother yourself in love and support and kindness and warmth. In fact, in this workshop on self-compassion, we were taught all these different ways in which you can touch yourself in order to give yourself a feeling of compassion. And for each person, it might be a little bit different. But one of the most popular forms is just to put your hand on your own chest or to put your hands over your heart. There's just something natural about that that feels like your own little hug. If you actually try to physically hug yourself, it's awkward and uncomfortable. But when you put your hand on your chest, it just feels like you're giving yourself an embrace. And it really does work. 
You might be rolling your eyes right now. I don't know, maybe you're not. I imagine that some people might be rolling their eyes right now because there's just such an emphasis in our culture on being stoic and not being emotional or, or sweet or cozy or vulnerable or treating yourself in any way like a sensitive child, even though I think deep down inside, we all contain a sensitive child within us. If you think about it, our brains are being formed when we are children. And then at a certain point, they kind of crystallize, and that's who you are. So your brain, the very foundations, the very form of your brain, the very structure of it, was completely created while you were a child. So there's not like the child in you is gone, or that you've outgrown the child in you, or that you've killed it. Quite the opposite. You are that child. That child completely dominates and controls you. And there's no point in trying to hide it. The, the best course of action, I think, is to embrace the child that is your brain, your conditioning, your, your culture, and your family, and your upbringing, and the various traumas that occurred to that child. That's all still completely a part of us, completely governing our action at all times. But the cultural misconception that strength comes from not being childish, from not being emotional, from not being all the things that you actually are, is so pervasive that even while I was at this self-compassion workshop, during the lunch break, I was in the hall doing a little bit of emailing, and a bunch of students walked by the workshop room because it was being held at a university. And as the students walked by, they started giggling, and they were like, did you see the sign? It's a self-compassion workshop. That's so ridiculous. And one of the students was like, yeah, I actually walked by earlier, and they all had their eyes closed, and they were all like meditating, and the kids started completely laughing, and one of the kids said, fucking snowflakes. To think that the mere thought of meditating, being sensitive, closing your eyes, being vulnerable, loving yourself was such an embarrassing thing to them, that we were snowflakes. Humans are snowflakes. We're fucking vulnerable, delicate, special little creatures. And the sooner we embrace that reality, the more powerful we will actually be. As Brene Brown says over and over again, vulnerability is courage. The person who can actually see, embrace, and love their inner child, see, embrace, and love themselves for all of their complexity and vulnerability, is the person who is the strongest. How are you going to change the world or change anything for the better if you can't even confront your whole self? We all have the same emotions. The person who can acknowledge what they're really feeling in the moment and work through it in front of everyone right then and there is the person who is in the best position to improve, to lead, to save the world. In fact, the strong, stoic, silent, manly type that we associate with positions of authority, I actually think that is the person with the most shame. That archetype is the person who is the most conditioned by culture. That is the person who is trying the hardest to fit in, to conform. I actually think that that archetype 
is the easiest to control and therefore the person we should be trusting the least and following the least. They are the most likely to be the henchmen of a larger system that doesn't necessarily have everybody's best interests or the well-being of everyone in mind. So it's my goal to not only give myself as much embarrassing, cheesy self-compassion as I need, but to try to be more open about it with everyone, to try to be more upfront about it, to try to just wear my emotions more on my sleeve, to get in touch with them again, to get over the taboos of showing my emotions, of loving myself, and of talking to myself, not to care less what other people think, because as a social animal, I am always going to care what people think, but to do it anyway, because I see now that it is actually, probably, the path towards the greatest well-being, both for myself and whoever's around me, whoever's mirror neurons are taking me in. So, good work, me. (laughs) Good for you, me. I love you, me.